Welcome to Season 2 of Sessions by The Herb Life. My name is Tiana, your friendly sessions facilitator, and we are back for Season 2 with a new lineup of people who have made cannabis their business. Between advocates, industry professionals, influencers, and creatives, we'll be showcasing some of the industry's best and brightest in a new episode every Thursday. Speaking of best and brightest, I'd like to give a special shout out to Sundial Cannabis, the natural alternative for modern wellness, without whom session season two wouldn't be possible. As a special thank you to Sundial, we've decided to kick off the season with two of their very own. Now, this episode, we welcome Laura Doll and Candace Johnson, two exceptionally intelligent women who will spend this session blowing your mind about grow science and, of course, the regulations that licensed producers need to adhere to in this new legal framework. I'll warn you, this episode is fairly advanced. I had to do some serious Googling on the different terminology around pesticides and beneficial bugs. But if you're considering growing your own plants at home or are interested in learning about what you can do to ensure your plants are healthy, this is a really great episode. They talk a lot about the integrated crop management and pest management systems, which is a high-level system for crop protection that uses biological, environmental, mechanical, and chemical treatments to keep healthy plants free from disease and insects. It's an incredibly interesting subject that sheds a light on how large cannabis grows protect their plants from some of the typical ailments. While cannabis is certainly a new and thriving industry, it is also an agricultural one. And we have, of course, been honing our agricultural skills for quite some time with the foods we eat. For me, the best part is we rarely get to see women represented in sciences, in all industries, not just the cannabis industry. So I highly value any opportunity to give a platform to women in this space who are working with and developing technologies to enhance our cannabis experience. Interestingly, Candace actually came from early learning and childhood development, which apparently transitions quite well into cannabis. She works as a lead in integrated crop management at the research and development facility, where she uses education and instinct to work with growers to ensure happy, healthy plants from clone to harvest. Laura, on the other hand, comes to cannabis in a less surprising manner, having completed a BA in science with a major in plant science, so she's worked in large-scale greenhouses for decades. But of course, in the spirit of cannabis, when I delved deeper into Laura's background, it turns out she's an exceptionally talented artist as well, having won a Greenpeace contest in Canada for her painting titled Save the Great Bear Rainforest. Now, if I were interviewing Laura, I definitely would have asked whether cannabis plays a role in inspiring her artwork, but maybe you can do it for me instead if you reach out to her on Twitter. So without further ado, I will pass it over to Candice and Laura, two very impressive women in the cannabis space. Thank you to The Herb Life for having us do this podcast today. My name is Laura Dole, and welcome, Candace Johnson. Thank you, Laura. I'm so glad to be doing this because we feel that the world needs to know more about ICM, especially with indoor cannabis. Do you agree, Candace? Absolutely. So, Laura, I've listened to several podcasts uh, on the topic of IPM and ICM, and today I would like you to just talk about the down and dirty, very general, basic IPM and ICM for cannabis. IPM and ICM mean anything to do with 
plant virus, plant disease, or pest insects attacking the crop. So IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management, while ICM stands for Integrated Crop Management. So for example, ICM would apply to the plants that are grown up in the space station and the plants grown indoors in the Arctic, as well as, for example, indoor cannabis groves, while IPM applies to um, blueberry crops outside, dealing with starlings, eating the berries, and various greenhouses with screens or without screens being a closed system greenhouse, but that would be an example of IPM. So Laura, you said that IPM uh, started more than 20 years ago. Can you tell me a little bit about the origin? Yeah, for sure. So um, a long time ago, vegetable greenhouses uh, started using chemicals to deal with their pest insects repeatedly. So when the pathogens and pests started building up resistance to the repeated chemical use, um, everyone started to realize that they needed better and more diverse tools. So essentially, that was the beginning of IPM. Uh, starting about 20 years ago, all the um, growers started to realize that if they integrated the tools that they had between environmental controls um, chemical controls and biocontrols, they would have an effective integrated pest management or crop management program to defend their plants. So we uh, are familiar with herbicides and pesticides. Everyone in Alberta spraying Roundup on the dandelions on our front lawns. Everybody in Alberta putting out powder to prevent ants in and outside of our homes. So why don't we talk a bit about biocontrols? Okay, I think that the top three pest insects for indoor-grown cannabis would probably be um, aphid, uh, thrip, and spider mite. But I'll talk about all the other ones too um, near the end, like things like root aphid and, you know, other things like botrytis and powdery mildew and fungus and all the good stuff. So let's start with aphid. Uh, there are so many different species of aphid around the world and in a nutshell I try to explain that you have to match the parasitoid with the aphid. So for example, if there's a large wild boar out in front of a cat, it the cat can eat the wild boar if someone cuts it up into little pieces and serves it in a bowl, but otherwise the, the cat can't really eat the wild boar. Um, but the cougar can. So if you match a cougar to the wild boar and the cat to the mouse, it will be effective. And the same rule applies to aphid. If the aphid is large, you need a larger uh, parasitoid wasp. Now, you don't only... Um, use uh, parasitoid wasps in indoor cannabis to um, uh, for your biocontrols for aphid. You can also use Adalia, which is the ladybug larva. Those guys are the unsung heroes of the ladybug world. Everyone gives credit to the ladybug, but really it's their offspring that do all the work. So everybody is familiar with a ladybug, but can you tell me about your parasitoid wasp? Because when I hear wasp, I think of... 
uh, those jerk face insects in the park with a giant hive and keep your kids away or they'll get stung. So what is a parasitoid? Okay, so in the biocontrol world, there are these tiny little flies, and I don't want to use words like stingers or anything like that um, because I don't want to create any, um, I don't want to paint a picture of these things at all having any interaction with humans. These insects uh, have only one interest, and that's to find the aphid within the area that they can literally give a little poke to. And then what happens is the inside of that aphid body morphs uh, into what I would call a good guy. So put another way, the aphid turns into a parasitic wasp through the mummification of the parasitoid inside. How you can tell this has happened is the parasitoid, when it's ready to hatch, if you will, it will cut a perfectly circular hole out of the top of the mummified aphid body and emerge when it's ready, um, thereby adding another good guy to your biocontrol. Um, a, a really good analogy that I like to give people when I'm explaining this story is the movie called The Alien. It's exactly like that. So you have only, in this case, the human becomes the aphid and the alien becomes the good guy. So uh, the, in the movie, the human is parasitized by the, the alien, and then um, the alien grows inside the human body. And when it's ready, it literally emerges through the chest cavity, and it's absolutely horrific, but it's exactly what happens in the aphid parasitoid wasp world. So it's interesting that we have learned what the parasitoids can do to help us get to harvest, to control aphid populations. Now, how about we talk about what we can do as growers to help the biocontrols that we've purchased be more effective and do their job better? That's a great idea. Yes. Okay. So with the indoor cannabis grows, there are so many fans and the parasitoids aren't great flyers. So you can turn your fans down, you know, assuming that you don't have something like uh, a mildew threat or something like that. Um, you can ensure that the temperatures aren't um, too low or too high. And most importantly, make sure that your relative humidity isn't below say about 65% because most biocontrols will require a higher humidity, a higher relative humidity. So, in fact, most of your biocontrols will begin experiencing a percentage of death as the relative humidity dips below 65. The lower the relative humidity goes, um, the greater disadvantage it is to your biocontrols. In fact, some you shouldn't even put in if you're running a, a 50 degrees, uh, sorry, a 50% relative humidity or so. And this conversation is very timely because it has been on CTV news about the excessive aphid population in both BC and Alberta this year. So where have these aphids come from? Generally, there are trade winds that come from the east or the south, from the states or eastern Canada. And one day you have absolutely nothing and the next day you see the fields and the skies above the fields swarming with aphids, thrips, and spider mite. So now that we've talked about aphid, let's talk about thrip. In my experience, uh, low thresholds of thrip 
are manageable with biocontrols. Yeah, that's where biocontrols really shine is when they're controlling populations of thrip. As long as you do it preventatively and um, well, you should not have a thrip problem. Um, we have some excellent biocontrols for thrip. Those are Aureus, the pirate bug. They'll do all stages of the thrip. They have a sword for a most part. They walk up to the victim and just pierce him and start eating his face off, basically. It's quite violent. And then there are um, a, a series of really good um, predatory mites like Swirsky or Cucumerus. If you're growing in cooler temperatures, use Cucumerus. If you um, have a higher thrip population and you're growing warmer, use uh, Swirsky and you should not have a problem. And just keep in mind that the, the threshold for thrip um, is a lot higher. You can handle a general population throughout the year and you shouldn't be bothered by it. So I hope that no one out there is panicked over a, a thrip population. Well, all of our home growers can breathe a sigh of relief. So at Sundial, I have never experienced a problem with spider mite, but why don't we talk about spider mite? Yes, spider mite, the buzzword. Well, they're very easy. All you have to do is add persimilis. It's a predatory mite. They're faster than spider mite. They walk right up to them and eat them alive. But if we're going to talk about the other pest insects that can attack your plants, um, meaning things like root aphid, white fly, looper, fungus gnat, russet mite, mealybug, um, we'll cut to the chase and tell you what to do with that. So for root aphid, you should um, sanitize and clone off, sanitize and cull, sanitize and clone off until you're rid of it. Um, there are things that we can touch on later, like um, uh, botanic gardens such that you can use, but I... I think that they're relatively ineffective compared to sanitizing and cloning and culling. And um, for whitefly, you can use Incarsia and Eremosaurus. They come on little cards that you hang on the plants. Um, if you're in higher temperatures, go for the Eremosaurus again. If lower temperatures, go for Incarsia. Be sure to keep your relative humidity high. The higher, the better for those ones. And Laura, sorry, uh, Incarsia and Eremosaurus, those are biocontrols, correct? Yeah, those are parasitic wasps as well. They're super tiny, like like the dot of a pen. It's really hard to see with your naked eyes. You want to put those under the microscope to look at them. They're really interesting. And for looper, you should probably just pick them off by hand because there's nothing effective to spray. You could spray BT, but again, it's not very effective. Um, you could also use uh, praying mantids for looper. Um, you have to know how to use them properly, um, but they do have some control for looper. For fungus gnat, use hypoaspis. For russet mite, burn your crop. For mealybug, burn your crop. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I don't think Health Canada would like it if you burn your crop. So instead, just call it. <laughs> no burning crops, just burning buds. Uh, okay, let's stop talking about the bugs. Let's spend some time talking about plant viruses. Ooh, plant virus and plant disease. Okay, so there's all different kinds of fungi out there in the world. And if you've worked in, in a greenhouse, especially if you've worked with coir or cocoa growing media, you'll know that a lot of spores in the air land where they will and when the conditions are right, they will grow. Meaning they need the right temperature and the right moisture 
and a beautiful fungus will grow. It can be any color. Most of them are quite uh, inert, not threatened to the plants at all. And when one of the parameters is removed, that fungus dies. So in my last, say, you know, 20 years, I've seen so many beautiful different kinds of fungi and they're nothing to be scared of. Um, that said, there are a few uh, species of fungi that do affect our agricultural crops around the world. So that includes cannabis. It's no different. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, so let's talk about the main fungal infections that all LPs experience. Powder mildew, botrytis, fusarium. Okay, I think that powdery mildew is probably the main one, and I like to describe something called the silent debate. <laughs> um, among the science professionals, there is a very small uh, debate whether or not powdery mildew is systemic or not. Um, but for the this argument's sake, we'll just say that it is. So the number one thing you should do is keep your plants healthy. Uh, you know all the ways to do this. Um, this is not what this podcast is about, but give it proper nutrition, um, good drainage, good um, airflow, good uh, growing media, um, proper waterings and proper temperatures. Let's talk about the temperatures though. Um, watch your graphs. If you don't have a graph to watch, then um, just pay attention to the temperatures because you can definitely cool off quickly, but you shouldn't warm up quickly. And if you have spikes and valleys uh, within your relative humidities and your temperatures, those are indications um, and, and precursors to potential powdery mildew coming out of the plant. Um, density and darkness are not your friend. And um, there's also the strain game, which means uh, different strains are more susceptible. Uh, different strains require different growing conditions. And if you don't have that dialed in and the plant does have powdery mildew systemically in it, um, through its plant stresses, it could come out and then it could sporulate and then you could have more powdery mildew. So the best action is definitely going to be prevention. But I think that we'll talk about the um, things that you can do if you get powdery mildew um, or ways to prevent it um, when we talk about the pesticides later in this podcast. And we'll just continue on with the other fungi like Botrytis and Fusarium. So Botrytis is the fungus that grows on everything. Um, it's everywhere. The spores are everywhere in the air. For example, when you're going grocery shopping and you're looking at that tray of strawberries and you look at the bottom of the clamshell to see if there are any rotten ones, sometimes you'll see some gray fuzzy mold growing on there. That's botrytis. Um, sometimes it catches you by surprise where you put a strawberry in your mouth and then it doesn't taste good and you spit it out. That's botrytis. Or sometimes you put the bad strawberry in your mouth and you choke it down because you are where you are and you're being polite that's botrytis. <laughs> so botrytis can happen to any plant, really on any plant part. Uh, the main place will, well, for cannabis would be the stem and or the, the flower, the bud. And it can be like a gray color or a brown or a brownie gray or even a white. So don't judge by the color, but, um, that's generally the look and the location. You can have a dry 
starting out botrytis, then it can go to a fuzzy or a wet. Um, regardless, it's really common and it's uh, nothing to be getting too upset about. In fact, they even made a kid movie about botrytis. It's called Epic. And actually, sorry, there's two kid movies about it because Moana also touches on botrytis. When the black starts eating into her island, turning everything from green to black, that's botrytis. Um, so the thing about botrytis is it, it requires a wound or a dead plant cell to start. But once it starts, it can then continue to consume the plant until it's dead. Um, again, you have to do many preventative measures to prevent this uh, from happening. So the best thing you can do is um, reduce all of your botrytis spores in the air in, in your space. So if you have a home grow, when you have no plants in there, you want to do a really good uh, cleanup job. Um, and if you're, if you're an LP, you want to make sure your room resets are really effective. And then after that, you have to sanitize between cuts and um, keep your sanitation methods in line because, again, botrytis um, starts and continues with plant wounds. And we'll, we'll touch about the other things that you can do um, using pesticides later on. Yes, I have certainly learned that sanitation can go a long way. Uh, now, how about fusarium? Okay, so fusarium is a harder one to get rid of. You don't want to let it go too far. Um, the longer you let it go, the harder it will be to rid of. But um, it also includes, a, you know, a good sanitation program. You want to do all you can when you don't have plants in there. But it also includes uh, making sure that your, your feed water is clean. Um, it's one pathogen that... Um, spreads very quickly and again sanitation of your blades your cutting blades whatever you're using to cut or prune your plants or take your clones that's all really important um, you'll often see it um, at the clone stage it'll be often a very dense uh, not very fuzzy but a very dense white um, if you're unsure if you have fusarium or not, I would definitely recommend sending a test away to make sure of the identification of that fungus. Okay, so how do you tell the difference between a plant virus and a disease? That's a good one. So the symptoms for the disease, the diseases, the most common diseases, which we just covered um, with, you know, powdery mildew and botrytis and fusarium, are very different symptoms than most plant viruses. Plant viruses, for example, tomato mosaic virus is a very um, popular one and it has the modeled um, variation of the color in the leaves, but it has a very distinct look to it. So a lot of people will see um, plant variegation in the leaves and right away assume it's something like TMV or tobacco mosaic virus, but it isn't. Um, plants are allowed to have uh, distinguished features based on their genetics, and that's okay. There are uh, known viruses in cannabis that affect the cannabis um, plant species, including cannabis cryptic virus, which Matthew Gates has recently uh, drawn a lot of attention to, so uh, I thank him for that. There's also um, hoplaton viroid, which isn't a virus, it's a viroid, there's a difference. 
but there's also a lot of uh, leaf spots and some rust. So you that's where you really have to know the difference between nutritional deficiencies um, and knowing the symptoms of those compared to virus symptoms. And as more research comes on, really cannabis-specific research, we're going to be able to identify those right away and we'll know the ones that are a threat and you should you know, basically cull your crop or the ones where the plant can, a healthy plant can grow through it and you shouldn't have a problem and no reason to hit the panic button there. So we've talked about a lot of pathogens. Should we be worried? No, I don't think so. Um, for example, that's why we irradiate things. Um, we irradiate uh, all different kinds of foods. That just kills all the pathogens, including like bacteria and anything that, you know, might be there. For the same reason, we irradiate things like, uh, for example, if you're getting a knee replacement and it goes through irradiation so that anything, any kind of pathogen that could be living in that plastic material that they're going to put in your body is first sterilized through and through, and then they put it in your body. So it's not going to cause any problems. Thanks, Laura. So this podcast is about ICM. So now let's talk about pesticides. Ah, pesticides. In the vegetable industry, we are allowed to use real, what I would call real pesticides, real chemicals that have been through rigorous testing. Um, and once they've been used, they basically um, become inert, kind of like bleach. Once bleach is dry, it's not going to do anything. And we don't have that tool in our toolbox for indoor or or greenhouse cannabis at all. So how does that make any sense? We can use chemicals on food, but we can't use chemicals on cannabis. Yeah, I know. I thought about that a lot. Like here we are spraying these heavy duty, real, you know, pesticides on our, our bell peppers. And then we hand it to our two-year-olds because it's nutritious. But how dare you spray something on that precious, you know, cannabis flower? But I think uh, the difference is that the, the cannabis flower is unique in that it's lit on fire. That said, I often wonder about the, the concept of putting, you know, a bell pepper on a barbecue. Is that lighting it on fire? Well, before I put my bell pepper on the barbecue, though, I wash it. I make sure it's washed thoroughly to wash any residual pesticides off. Well... That's awesome that you wash the outside, and as we should, but a lot of chemicals these days, chemical pesticides anyway on our food, aren't on the surface, they're on the inside of the food because we give the pesticides to the plant roots, they take it up systemically, and it's all in all parts of the plant. Unless we're talking about things like uh, citrus with lemon or lime or orange they have the skin on the outside which is not eaten normally so a lot of pesticides are on the outside of those uh, fruits and so that's why often you'll see some people won't put the slice of lemon or lime into their drink because essentially what you're doing is 
putting the dried pesticides on the outside of that rind into your water or into your drink and then sort of rehydrating it, which probably isn't the greatest. Or in the case of um, diatomaceous earth, for example, a lot of the organic growers don't have a lot of tools or a lot of options because, of course, they don't use pesticides. So instead, they use diatomaceous earth. And we call it diamond dust because it never breaks down. So the person thinks, oh, my stuff is organic. I don't have to wash it. Um, it's probably fine. And then they consume it. But there's some diatomaceous earth on there and it gets into your bloodstream or the, the smallest part of your lungs. And it, it stays there for life, just scratching away. And, you know, you never had a cigarette in your life, but now you've got lung cancer and you don't know why. It could be diatomaceous earth. So you mean that the government allows chemical pesticides to be sprayed on foods, but does not allow it to be sprayed on cannabis? Yes, that's right. Exactly. We can use true pesticides on our vegetables, but we can't. We use biopesticides basically only in our cannabis. So let's be clear about what those are. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion uh, and misinformation in the public uh, about licensed producers and pesticide use. Um, I had an experience a few months ago where I was renewing my medical cannabis prescription uh, and the lady speaking to the cannabis consultant right next to me um, when asked some questions about her preferred licensed producer said that she would prefer the producer that used no pesticides. And I thought to myself, well, none of us can use real pesticides. And then it occurred to me that how on earth would the public know that? Uh, the cannabis consultant did not know that. And how would anybody else? So I think it's important to talk about the active ingredients available in the pesticides that Health Canada has approved, have, has approved for cannabis use. Yeah, so if people would like to see what Health Canada does allow for pesticides, they just have to go to the website and under the label search, um, type in cannabis, and right now there are 28 um, registered pesticides allowed for cannabis. But, for example, um, the active ingredients include canola oil as an active ingredient, garlic as an active ingredient, lactic citric acid as an active ingredient, endomopathogenic fungus as an active ingredient, that's a naturally occurring fungus out there outside. There's also biofungicides, um, hydrogen peroxide, um, some soaps with a couple drops of oil in it to get rid of the, the suds part of it, and um, sulfur, which is an element. So this is a very unique um, regulated industry working within cannabis, and I'm sure you've experienced a lot of um, headwinds and tailwinds, and I wanted to know more about that. So obviously this is a brand new industry uh, and there are some obstacles uh, that we face. Um, for example, cannabis, legalized cannabis doesn't really have a pre-existing framework in Canada. Um, so we are sometimes not quite sure of our identity. We have people uh, at LPs from pharma, from agriculture, from oil and gas, from every walk and talk of life. So all of those ideas all of those personalities, all of those frameworks together sometimes can make for a great positive functional work environment. And I'm sure sometimes can also cause a little bit of chaos uh, and some bruised egos.
The other uh, thing we have to keep in mind is that the regulations in every aspect of licensed cannabis change very quickly. Um, and sometimes there isn't even time to recalculate between changes. So for example, in ICM, uh, one day you check the approved pesticide list and there's 27 products approved for legal cannabis. The next day there's 30. So we are always in the position of having to go with the flow and stay versatile and fluid. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like that's what Sundial is doing differently. They've hired all of these experienced people um, and we're, we don't necessarily have to try to reinvent the wheel because um, the large scale commercial plant production of the vegetable industry has already come before and all of the IPM principles are still the same and they're just reconfigured to suit um, like the indoor cannabis and it's a huge advantage. Yeah, there's many advantages to working in this fast-paced, brand-new industry. Um, my past, of course, is in early learning and childcare. So I thought the transition to licensed cannabis would be different, but people are people. And the great thing about uh, this brand-new industry is all of the diversity. Uh, we have people from all walks of life, like I said, um, farmer, agriculture, oil and gas, uh, all bringing their ideas, all bringing their culture from those workplaces. And really, we get to mold it uh, however we like, however works for us. Um, I find, especially in this new industry, coming from an industry that was predominantly women, um, women are often conditioned to take support roles. Uh, and licensed cannabis, we are breaking so many boundaries. We have women working in every single division of the company. So Laura, now your background is in agriculture. Can you tell me a bit about the differences or similarities between being a woman working in agriculture and in the new industry of licensed cannabis? In agriculture, I always felt heard. And I think with any new industry, especially with lots of um, backgrounds coming together, um, especially being a female, you have to almost prove your knowledge and skills to your peers in order to gain their respect um, for your past experience, that you do know your stuff and you can contribute in a significant way. And uh, it, it, that's not for every personality. Um, the challenge is there. Um, and I don't think that it's totally unique to cannabis or you know, a new industry. It's just as a society, being female in a workplace. That said, I still think that if a man is persistent, he's a leader. If a woman is persistent, she can be perceived as annoying. So as a society, I think we really have to work on that. So what advice could we give to anyone wanting to start a new career in legalized cannabis? I think it's important to understand that cannabis is ever-changing. It's highly regulated. It's fast-paced, like faster than anything that I've ever heard of in the past. It's new, so every place is a startup. And with startups, there are, there's going to be a lot of changes. And if you, if you can't roll with the punches, if you're not flexible, then this isn't your cup of tea. That said, with high risk comes high reward. And right now, we're still in the beginning stages. Edibles are just about to become legalized. And there is nowhere to go but up 
in my opinion. And you can be, like I always say, your, your own best friend or your own worst enemy, depending on your work ethic, depending on your perspective, depending on your ability to learn quickly and roll with the punches and, and uh, be open-minded and uh, be a dedicated hard worker. Um, the sky is the limit, really. Like, I mean, there are so many areas that we have yet to address. And so, you know, this may have been around for a few years, but really it's in the very beginning stages. And I would probably say to anyone listening that's thinking of a career in cannabis, don't be afraid to try. If you had told me five years ago uh, that I would be working in integrated crop management for Sundial Growers Licensed Producer, I, I would have laughed hilariously. Um, but I took a chance and I was fortunate that Sundial was willing to take a chance on me. So if you're interested, if you want to try, take a chance. Yeah. And you know, things are becoming more uh, fair slowly, but surely as a society, we've got all these fathers who have daughters who want to picture their future with equal pay and equal respect and successful, happy women passionate about their future. So I think for our last few minutes, maybe we should think about um, what questions um, our podcast listeners might have after listening today. So I, I think the coolest part uh, of the podcast was the biocontrols. So what questions might a listener have about biocontrols? It's good that they know that there's lots of different beneficial insects out there for them to buy. Um, I think that you have to be a commercial producer in some capacity, a, a business to be able to buy them, but um, there are about four worldwide biocontrol companies that actually produce beneficial insects commercially for purchase and they're sent around the world. And well, you know, I, I thought of something that would be a fun fact to let our listeners know. Excellent. I want to address the fact that, well, thrip and spider mite have what's called a super gut. So through time, plants who were being attacked developed uh, phytotoxins to try to kill the insects that were eating them. The spider mites and the, and the thrip through time developed super guts to be able to handle these plant phytotoxins so that they wouldn't die. And as a result, that's why spider mite and thrip are so good at um, developing resistance to chemical pesticides um, for that reason, because they were always used to dealing with new plant phytotoxins to have to um, process in their bodies. So that's why we call, well, that's why it's coined the term that they have a super gut. So use bios when it comes to thrip and spider mite for this reason. They have super guts. You can spray all you want. It's not really going to do very much good. You know what else? Is if you do have spider mite and you are using persimilis um, or any of the other biocontrols to uh, get rid of them, you have a small window of opportunity to deal with your spider mite issues before they go into diapause. And what's diapause? It's like a polar bear, or sorry, any bear that goes into hibernation. So a spider mite inner clock goes by um, day length. And when day length basically hits around fall time, they go into what's called diapause, which means that they form a coat of armor around their body that no pesticide 
uh, can penetrate and, and kill them. So what they do is they, they go into all the cracks of the greenhouse or cracks of the ground or cracks of the facility or your, um, you know, your basement home grow or something like that. And they wait in dormancy until um, spring when they reemerge. So when they're in that dormant state with that shield of armor, no chemical can hurt them. And beneficial insects can't be effective during that time either because it's exactly like if you were starving for a month and I gave you a moldy hamburger, you still wouldn't eat it because it's a gross moldy hamburger, but, or, you know, something moldy. Maybe if you're vegan, you would, I would give you a moldy nectarine. (laughs) (laughs) So you should deal with your spider mite within the window of, you know, spring and summer when you can. Otherwise, um, you're going to have to wait until the following spring to be able to deal with them. Well, that's all the time that we have, Laura. Uh, We'd like to thank The Herb Life for having us today. We'd like to thank all the podcast podcast listeners. Hope you guys learned something, enjoyed it, uh, had a good time, took something positive away from this. And if you guys want to find us, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're both on there. Candace, what's your Twitter handle? At JCJohns9. J-C-J-O-H-N-S-9. And mine is at Laura underscore Dole. That's D-O-E-L-L. And thank you, everyone. And thank you, The Herb Life. We really enjoyed this. Bye, guys. Bye.